This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Cammy here. Today's episode of the podcast is a chat with Ashley Marie Preston and Juliana Brudek, sort of about their film Disarm Hate, although we really did not... I, I got sidetracked in a lot of other conversations and we did not talk about Disarm Hate um, as much as we should have, but it's a documentary that is about gun violence and um, the aftermath of, of the Pulse shooting, and you can watch it on a bunch of different streaming services. So please enjoy this episode and then also go watch Disarm Hate. And I wanted to mention to you an exciting bonus podcast. What? What are you talking about? Well, you might not know this, but podcasting in general has taken a bit of a hit in terms of advertising revenue during the pandemic. Sure, the daily is doing fine, but the rest of us are trying to figure out how to keep our awesome podcasts going. Sierra and I put our heads together and we came up with a listener call-in companion podcast. Wait, what? Yes, it is called Hey Queeros, and it's available exclusively through Patreon. What? How does it work? You call 904-8-QUERY. That's 904-8-QUERY, and leave a voicemail or record your message as an MP3 and email it to heyqueeros at gmail.com. You will be part of the new Query Companion Podcast, Hey Queeros. All this information and more, including all the perks that are available at any level of Patreon patronage, are available for your perusal at patreon.com slash heyqueeros. That's patreon.com slash heyqueeros. Hop on there, join it up. Let's make a little side hustle that keeps the main hustle going. Y'all are great. Check it out. Mwah. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you both introduce yourselves? You, uh, please, Ashley, go first. You go first. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Juliana Brudek. I'm a director and producer of the documentary Disarm Hate, which is streaming now on platforms everywhere. I'm Ashley Marie Preston. I'm a civil rights activist, media personality, and cast member and executive producer for Disarm Hate, the documentary. And maybe you, maybe we could start by you two telling me a little bit about Disarm Hate. It's your vision, it's your baby. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm going. I'm going. Um, disarm hate. Uh, it is. It's my baby. It is my baby. It's a labor of love. Um, it came or grew out of the Pulse massacre, uh, June 11th, 2016, and um, I just remember feeling like. I needed to do something. And what happened was I gathered nine activists from the LGBTQ area and we went on a sorgen to uh, DC. And on the way we stopped at pro-gun places, anti-gun places, and we ended at a rally uh, for LGBTQ equal rights in DC um, and uh, gun reform. Um, I want to say- Where were you? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Keep, keep going. Keep going. Keep oh, going. no. Uh, and, the, and when it ended, we were, it was, it was, I just wanted to throw in the piece of uh, gun reform was also the topic of the rally in DC. Where were you living at the time? Um, I live in Los Angeles. I was living there um, four years ago as well. And, um, and, and Ashley, um, is it, do you go by Ashley or Ashley Marie? Uh, Ashley. Yeah, in media, in in print, it's Ashley Marie Preston, but, you know, conversational, it's Ashley. (laughs) Ashley, um, you were living in Los Angeles then as well, correct? That's correct. I think -hmm. think you live here, yes. So did you all two know each other prior to this particular journey? Um, Yes, 
kind of and <laughs> no definitely we have scores of mutual friends um and but i think that um from what i understood when Jul- uh, um when juliana reached out is that she wanted to make sure that there was diverse representation of community. And I think that that's such an important thing because when we talk about LGBTQ issues in general and the disparities that impact our community, we often subscribe to this catch-all advocacy that doesn't catch all of us, like not understanding that women and people of color and even the trans community have disproportionate experiences um, that don't affect this homogenized, you know, uh, version or identity of what it means to be LGBTQ. So that was what appealed to me was that I got to actually insert the trans narrative into this experience in a way that felt real and authentic. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that and and like what you mean uh, in terms of a trans experience or lived perspective on gun violence, something like Well, first, I just want to like qualify it. We say things like intersectionality all the time in specific uh, spaces, not recognizing that there's a lot of people who may not be familiar with that. So intersectionality describes multiple threats of discrimination when an individual's identity overlaps with multiple marginalized groups. So if someone is LGBTQ, if they're a woman, and if they're a woman of color, and if they're a trans woman of color, all of those um, experiences around oppression are compounded. Um, And so um, I think for me, like as a Black trans woman, I, my life is a blueprint of what that looks like. I came from Kentucky at 19 years old, um, didn't have language to describe trans identity, but I knew that whatever I was experiencing intrinsically would not be welcomed and safe in that atmosphere, in that environment. And so I moved to LA got a job, transitioned on the job. I was immediately harassed and discriminated against. I went to human resources and my management. They didn't protect me. This is pre, you know, Supreme Court deciding that there were workplace protections covered under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, And I got fired, which means I lost my apartment, which means I was on the streets homeless. Unlike cisgender people, um, for those who don't know what cisgender means, it's when your gender identity is in alignment with the sex you were assigned at birth. Um, So cisgender people could go to a shelter and then they would have a bed, you know, a place to sleep and a place to eat, shower, all those things. But because I was trans, my um, definition of womanhood wasn't in alignment with theirs. So I didn't get the help that I needed. And I was so desperate that I was willing to go to men's shelters. And even those shelters were looking at me and they were like, absolutely not. You're going to be a disruption to the milieu. So I ended up having to engage in survival sex work um, and also ended up using drugs as a social lubricant to be able to help me navigate all of the daily trauma and PTSD that I endured while on the streets. Now, what happens is right off the bat, you see several things. You see that um, sex work is going to be um, a risk factor, a higher risk factor. Drugs are going to be a higher risk factor. Homelessness, you know, the harassment that you deal with by law enforcement and by people in communities who have these, um, these negative attitudes about, you know, poor people. And so all of those things exacerbate my chances of coming into contact with gun violence, whether it's at the hands of law enforcement, whether it's at the hands of, um, you know, a trans-attracted client who then flips out, you know, there's just different things that happen. Yeah, and specifically Blackness also, because, you know, if you're talking about law enforcement, I mean, if you're talking about... um, being a black person living in America, of course, the the concept that like I'm from Chicago, and uh, it's a very interesting time for this uh, president. It's it's like the way that he talks about um, Chicago is a way that I hear so loud in what he's saying because he talks about Chicago as having a huge problem with gun violence, and you know I know because I am from there that that is those are three neighborhoods and those are black neighborhoods. And, and also that the reason that 
it's so easy to get guns in Chicago is because it is so easy to buy guns in Indiana and that the borders make it so that, you know, those specific neighborhoods, it, it's um, impossible to avoid. And then where I grew up, I mean, it's <laughs> gun violence is not the, is not the main issue. So I think it's also just really important to specifically call out. Um, I know, I know I don't have to tell you this, but just for our listeners, blackness as something that would um, really affect uh, yeah. trans persons. Well, that's what I was specifically naming when I was talking yeah. about law enforcement and, right. um, and also transness. I don't know why mm-hmm. people don't equate that. When you look at that's a great point. people who were murdered, they were black trans women typically. Um, right. And so you know, majority of them, every single year we do TDOR, the Trans Day of Remembrance, it's usually Black trans women or femmes, you know? And so Blackness uh, uh, compounded by right. uh, trans identity and, you know, socioeconomic status, you know, and like where you are, you know, on a national average, uh, trans people of color make less than $10,000 a year. And so when you add all of those variables together, the likelihood of us being shot there by, you know, uh, someone uh, that we've been in contact with, typically intimate partner violence is a piece of it too, because of the social stigma around dating trans women, specifically trans women, because I feel like with the trans men, from what I understand, there is a little bit more acceptance because there isn't that, uh, I'm not societally, but in relationships, that dynamic there's a little bit more um, acceptance and understanding versus, you know, misogyny, <laughs> misogynoir, and the way that it um, uh, it seeps into every aspect of society. When trans women are dating, it also rolls over, and so there's these notions of what it means to be a real man, and like, does this right. gay? Does this, you know, all of those things that happen. So, in disarm hate we had an opportunity to talk about all those things. We had an opportunity to talk about not just the experiences of people who, um, you know, they weren't accepted by their family, but what does it look like when you aren't even accepted in society? And even when we talk about, um, you know, these issues around trans identity, we're in LA and in some places, uh, New York, and but there's an entire country in between LA and New York. And so... Um, when I sometimes hear gay and lesbian people or bi people in LA or New York say, you know, we're um, going through all of these different things. And, and, and Jules knows that like we had several conversations on the RV with other cast members because like they were like, well, I understand. And it's like, stop playing in my face. You do not understand because you haven't had to deal. You're talking about things that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And those things, if we don't heal them, they most certainly do have, um, they weigh on our lives and our relationships and our mental health and all of those things. And there are still microaggressions, right, that exist. But I don't know that when we talk about LGBTQ challenges, look at what this administration has done. They specifically targeted the trans community. This specifically, like from day one, like, and our kids, our children, you know, Gavin Grimm, all of these like examples of how trans is a part of the LGBTQ community, but yet we've always been kind of on the outskirts. Yes, yes. That's such, I mean, and and, the, and what Ashley said about on the RV, see, for me, I also was a spectator. You know, I am like, my role as director became role of audience member. Like, it's so strange, Cameron, to find yourself on a bus bound for a place that you kind of understand, like I'm an activist from, you know, way back, but to be on a bus bound for, it felt like, uh, like, I just want to tell you, like I was being schooled 24 seven. Like (laughs) I thought I knew my community and I don't. And that's the value. The intrinsic value in the film is that you don't know until you're sitting with the people that make those conversations happen. And most people, unless they're sitting in an RV, sweating, smelling rotten kimchi like we were, um, 
in 90 90- you smelled like rotten kimchi no the fridge was broken the fridge oh. was broken and so we would have food in there so you have all of these people with different diets and okay. like you know you have me the vegan then you have like somebody else who just felt like they wanted to just have a probiotic or something and like all of this and then they the <laughs> it's the dead of summer the fridge stops working and so we're traveling in the dead of summer without the fridge. It's hot and the stuff is just like festering. And um, the AC broke at one point. And if you see the film, it's a moment where I think is the uh, dark night of the soul. Like, I swear, I I felt like we weren't going to get to this rally. And not only that, what the piece that I'm going to give you is that the viewers don't get is that I'm on the phone with the rally organizers saying the money is not there yet. I don't know if it's going to happen when you get here. So Mm -hmm. I'm panicking. And then, you know, the AC goes out. I've got nine people plus four crew members. And we're sitting in this stinky diaper. And they have to have these conversations because there's nowhere else to go. So it's facilitated by this uh, accident, this happy accident. So what I'm saying is what grew out of that is, for me, a learning experience and the what I kept saying during per, uh, post-production when I didn't think this I would finish this film was that the value is what what we are going to talk about from here on out to pass the torch. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that it's really interesting. I think for me, it was a unique experience because we know that like Black trans families in America are the most oppressed group of people outside of like Black trans uh, refugees. <laughs> um, and, but I wasn't even aware that I even had these internal biases within myself. So I remember that there was a point where we were talking about bisexuality. And so, you know, again, from Kentucky, like not to shade Kentucky, but like, I, I had a lot of ideas about things in 2016 that I've evolved on. Um, and I remember basically telling, uh, to, <laughs> not even registering that there's two bi people on the RV. And I'm just like, whatever, like that doesn't, that's not real. Like, you know, like y'all can't make up your minds and you play with our heads and, and, and you do this. And so I recognize in that moment, again, what I was saying a moment ago, we have all of this uh, trauma and these experiences that we carry as a community that creep up when we least expect it. So it was this, interesting uh, juxtaposition of like awareness, you know, and understanding identity, and then finding those blind spots within myself. That's like, okay, so like, I want community to get on board with blackness. I want them to get on board with transness, but there was something that was preventing me from accepting other people's identity in the community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that is like what stands out to me so far about the conversation that we're having is, you know, I like, I, I love to use phrases like, you know, queer family or LGBTQ family, you know, like I love to use phrases like that because it makes me, feel, because I, because I genuinely feel motivated by like actual love for marginalized people because of because of my own experiences with marginalization like i look at other marginalized people and it comes from a place of love but we aren't a community you know like we are a bunch of tiny communities and it's it's always i think important to try to build bridges because i think that when we come in with an assumption that like all of the letters put in a line means that we understand each other, you know? <laughs> I think that's an assumption that just doesn't work. I mean, I even heard sort of in what you said earlier, like, you know, you were mentioning um, microaggressions still happening for, you know, like for folks outside of the trans community. And I would say it's actually, I, I still experience what I believe are like straight up aggressions i still experience what i believe are moments of like great unsafety and i still experience things like i know pay disparity like i know i know what other comics i know what like a dude comic who is a straight guy the opportunities that he has that doesn't mean that i understand what it is to be part of the most marginalized community in the united states right now 
And both of those things can be true. Like it can be that, you know, that I know for a fact, if I walk into a place with this haircut that like my haircut can stress people out, like we're still there, you know, and also, you know, and also intimate partner violence is most acute right now in the black trans community. Police, the aggression and murder perpetrated by the police is most like my white skin. I'm in a different situation. My haircut in one situation is a is a terrible Absolutely. is a terrible you know thing to carry. My white skin helps me a lot. You know, so it's it is. I think it's really important that we sort of talk about how where we are right now is not a community. We are many many communities. And I don't think that's a bad thing. No, it's not. Sometimes, and, I'm, and I know that you don't mean it that way, but I think that that's the barrier is that a lot of people in our respective community um, feel it's the same conversation around racism. You know, white people have been socialized to not talk about race as a show of their non-racism. And so yep. like in the community, we won't talk about areas of opportunity in which we can grow because it means that we're not a community and oh God, if we're not a community, then what are we? Ah! Right. And so <laughs> the thing is we can't heal what we don't reveal. And so yeah. what we got to experience on the RV and on that journey was that it was through those difficult, uncomfortable, you know, conversations that we got to understand one another in ways that uh, we never had. And once we left that R&B, the work continued. So like, it wasn't like, oh, wow, like I got to actually understand what it's like to be by and, you know, grow up in the Midwest, you know, thanks higher power. And it's like, no, like, <laughs> that's right. This is a lifelong work. You know what I mean? And yeah, comfortable and it's excruciating. And, you know, even again, th- those blind spots we're talking about, you were like, yeah, like I can still go places with my haircut and it's still, but the LA in me, like I've been here 16 years now. So the LA in me is like hair. But again, we have to like get out of this myopic, like, um, you know, way of looking at things because everything is regional and it's, you know, it just, it just differs, you know? And so I think that what the goal should be is not to invalidate experiences, you know, um, to your point, all of those things can be true of one another in the same space. So those truths can overlap. And so that was what that journey was on the RV is just being able to figure out how do we hold space in a way that affirms and validates experiences and also is willing to interrogate the ways in which we've consciously and subconsciously been complicit and, um, exacerbating those dynamics. Yeah. I think, I think I'm like really excited to have this conversation because I think what, I think, yeah, I like, I think we really see this in in a lot of similar ways. Like, I think that there's a big difference between, you know, environment and systems. Like we are born into an environment, we are born into systems. And the reason I said that we're not necessarily a community is because community requires intention and creation. So we're born into systems, we're born into environments, but to create a, to be a community means intention creation. It means having conversations like this and making films like you're talking about, you know, this is, it's, it has to be like a conscious act. And, and especially the people who benefit from environment and systems have to then go the extra mile in terms of intention and creation. Yeah. And let's, so let's talk about, this is a really good place to put. So you know, the 90s, people were like, hey, we're LGB and maybe sometimes T. And we would come out and dance on parade floats and grind. And people were excited about unveiling the rainbow flag. And then something happened where it started getting a little more serious. No hate. Let's get a marriage equality. Things start getting us protest in the streets of Los Angeles, which I did. I know so many of my friends and the people in this film did. Um, and now we're in an area that I like to think of as deconstructionist because what you said earlier was um, it's not a bad thing that we're all these subcategories and we're all like, well, uh-uh, I don't like Kamala. I do. And 
you know, I know literally the, the queer meltdown. It's, yeah. it's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see a timeline. During, no, and, during and everybody like is like, no, I can have my opinion. Yes, you yes. can. No, you can't. And it's like, <laughs> but I'm the B and I want to speak the loudest. And I'm the, uh, I, but here's the deal with the Christopher Street ordeal this year and how Black Lives Matter um, was, I want to say we parlayed that um, the pride festivities to the Black Lives Matter movement showcases this deconstruction and how we're going to have to now evolve. So, Ashley, one of my favorite lines in the movie is you all were waving, you know, um, your, wait, let me say it right. Marriage equality came and you all picked up your rainbow flags and marched the fuck off. And pardon my friend. <laughs> no, I said something to the effect of basically like you took your rainbow flags, your new husbands and wives and like skipped off. Into yeah, the- skipped <laughs> off, skipped off. Yeah, and it's just like, and left us there to fend for ourselves. And so the thing is that even, even I have to say, um, I was actually one of the voices behind the whole like Christopher Street meltdown because even still areas of opportunity, understanding that um, intention doesn't always dictate the impact. So understanding that even when we mean well, it can still be harmful. So what... Wait, Ashley, can you explain? Can we just give a piece of what we're talking about? In case yes, people, that's what I was just going to ask you to do. Thank you. Because um, here in Los Angeles, not everybody's privy to what happened with BL... Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. 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 So, yeah, yeah. So basically, so um, so for those like who don't understand, uh, basically, LA Pride, uh, Christopher Street West is the nonprofit that does LA Pride um, every year. Um, and so I used to be a board member, and so it's a lot of hard work. So definitely, um, I lift up the folks who do that every single year because it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> um, but um, in this instance, everyone was talking about, you know, Black lives. And, and so Pride decided that, you know, we're going to hold um, a march and protest to, like, you know, show our solidarity. No one from Black Lives Matter or Black leadership in L.A. was actually informed about that decision. So no one reached out to say, hey, we want to show up for you in this way. What can we do? How can we, which is, you know, we talk about ally, right? What is an ally? And so the best way to be an ally is to ask, how can I help? How can I be of service? How can I be of use to your cause? And that, they bypass that. And so when that happens, then there's this co-optation that happens and then it spirals off into something else. Even though it began with good intentions, the impact once again reinforced, um, you know, this idea that we have to separate saviorism from solidarity. And so saviorism is still uh, this death grip on power um, in a way that jumps in and rescues as the hero, but you're not willing to dismantle these systems that, that uphold that dynamic that you have more power and I don't. So they're still trying to kind of like, um, I guess like apportion some of their privilege toward goodwill, but not actually being willing to completely disrupt the power dynamics altogether. So quickly, um, I, I basically... <laughs> I uh, reached out and was like, you know, you're saying that it's about uh, Black solidarity, but solidarity is about being in alignment with said mission. Um, and so we were talking about, and Black Lives Matter, at least, the importance of defunding the police. We were talking about uh, things that were going on with uh, DA Jackie Lacey and the ways in which she has been complicit in, in, in covering up murders and all of these, just all of these terrible things. And so, but that's not what we saw. We saw uh, cute queens and go-go shorts and glitter and all of these things. And it's like, again, it's this, um, it's, it's unintentionally, I do believe that it's unintentional, but it's this watering down, sanitizing, uh, kind of like, you know, um, it, it kind of like, it, it disrupts the message. So when we talk about protest, it's not just about uh, bringing in bodies, it's about bringing the message. And so the importance of engaging those th that will benefit from your help 
is that you get to make sure that the message is intact. And so Mm -hmm. that was why, you know, again, we continuously see that um, the reason why we can't connect is so some people, they'll try to do something. And then instead of just saying like, oh, let me actually step back and look at the ways in which whiteness was working through me. And I didn't know that. But, you know, people's feelings get hurt. You know, like we're sensitive people, you know what I mean? In general, you know what I mean? And so it's like, I was trying to do a good thing. And then like, I got my hand slapped and told to go sit in the corner. And it's like, that's not what it is. We're saying that again, we can't heal what we don't reveal. So we need you to understand that um, there's so much on the line. And so there are a lot of people right now that are performing uh, solidarity uh, through like, oh, like I took a picture, I did this, I did, but what does it really mean to show up? I mean, it's yeah. funny. I mean, maybe you're like, maybe you're, maybe you've just processed it more. I actually feel like I almost have an even darker read on all of that than you do. Like I, that felt very dark to me. Um, that time felt very dark to me. I think, you know, uh, so yeah, for like a little more context, maybe for folks that don't live in Los Angeles, some of what happened was that, um, and I had forgotten the name of the, I mean, this is how I'm doing. I'd forgotten that it's even called Christopher Street West. So when you were like Christopher Street debacle, I was like, wait, what is, what are they talking? But it's right. So what happened There's was that, one too, so. <laughs> yeah, word, word. Um, but just that, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and so there were gonna there were not gonna be pride parades or gatherings. And then the Black Lives Matter movement is you know popping up again in a very in a, in an even stronger way. People are protesting. It's bleeding into June. The protests are bleeding into June, and there and information came out about not just that the pride parade has been turned into a march, but that words like peaceful were being used and cooperation with the police were being used. Um, and I, that just, that felt very dark uh, to me because they're, you know, it's um, reflective of racist language that was already calling the protesters using words like peaceful to take down righteous protest. Um, like, can't you do this peacefully? Yeah. What did you say? Looters. <laughs> Looters. Yes. Looting, rioting, you know, and so we'll do this peacefully. Um, and, you know, I, I also just, I had a lot of conversations with my friends at the time about what does it mean, you know, to look at the uh, the white people I know who are showing up and wonder about their intention, their intentionality. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about intention and creation. So if somebody's showing up to a protest and they have the right sign and they're putting their body in the way, does their intention matter? Like, that's a lot of the conversations I was having with my friends. Like, I want, I want purity of intention, you know, because that, and, and purity of intention comes from, like you're saying, actually speaking with uh the folks who who are most affected i mean it seemed as if the people organizing it forgot that black lives matter is an actual organization like it's it's a, there are humans this is an organization you know not a uh disseminated yes. like instagram post like this is a, an organization with with leadership um and that leadership has been speaking and so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know where I fall in that. I want, I would like for white people to like, you know, get in the, get in the fight. And I think my purity of intention, my, my desire for purity of intention, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that matters. Like, I'm not sure that. I know well, that I maybe that many white people got more white people aware. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe there are good side effects. Well, well it certainly made me oh. want to vomit. But the part with Christopher Street West is that here is an organization, and, and like Ashley said, there are many factions of it that has been operating a certain way for decades and mm-hmm. has shut 
black and brown people basically out or has not listened. Like I happen to be on a Zoom call with Black Lives, uh, with a lot of the people who have been doing both Pride and Black Lives. And I heard a lot about the systemic racism that has existed with Pride in Los Angeles for decades. And I didn't know even to the extent. So that is what happened. And then they issued an apology. Um, what is the name of the, um, the, the, not CEO, Ashley, but um, what is the name? What is his name again? Um, ahead of Christopher Street West. Uh, Esteban Montemayor? Yes. He, uh, he, he gave a, um, a, 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 basically a note that said, we are stepping back this year. We are allowing the Black leadership to come in. So... I just want to just insert something really fast and go back because like I've been like making notes on everything. So basically to your point, so uh, to Cameron's point, so basically, uh, yes, there were so many different uh, layers of, uh, <laughs> of uh, layers. chaos that like, it, it, yeah, it would take a while to break it all down. But <laughs> on the law enforcement part, I think what was interesting um was that, um, so the pieces that I did get the same read, what I've learned as a Black person is I can't always say the same thing that you can say. So like, sure. <laughs> you, it's just like, oh, you know, like, yes, you know, wow, Cameron, you're so, but the minute I say, no, their intentions were this, they were standing, <laughs> they co-opted, they didn't want to basically waste their corporate sponsor's money because most of these corporate sponsors as a former board member have already paid all these dollars in. And so there's rainbow capitalism entrenched in this conversation. There's there's just like all of this like stuff that's like happening. And so Black lives are just kind of like the prop, you know what I mean? And so what that was really the point that I was making when I was like, had this really been about us and for us, we would have been at the, not the center, but at the front of that conversation. And then it would have been an opportunity for us to trust Black leadership. Because to your point, there was language being used, um, you know, protesters, looters, it's all the same thing. We know that there were Asian provocateurs, there were like, you know, actual law enforcement were busting out windows later, they discovered some of these people, someone's ex-wife came out and was like, Yes, that's my ex-husband. Like, he is a member. Like, yeah. And so, like, we saw the corruption. And I think what's gross sometimes about our community, and I'm just going to call it straight out gross, is that we ignore the fact that we actually, we are the descendants of brick throwers. Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Stormy, all of these, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn, our pride, it, it was a protest. And so throughout the years, the more people continue to um, access privilege and be able to, um, you know, try and um, try and gain or access this level of dignity or, you know, rights. And we start to become indoctrinated and we try to assimilate into heteronormativity or these respectability politics that are authored by institutions that don't respect any of us. They don't respect queer folks, LGBTQ, trans, you know, PLC, none of us. And so I think that um, there was an email that came out uh, from one of the coordinators that that showed that they were actually trying to court the LAPD and the, I mean, the sheriffs, and they actually weren't interested. They were actually, they actually didn't get the permit. So they made it look like, like, oh, you know, we decided that we're not. And it's like, you didn't decide. They told you no, because they knew that it was going to bring, you know, possibly like, you know, the feds will come in, like the storm, you know, like the troopers and stuff that we saw in Seattle and all of that and, and Portland. They didn't want that. And so we continue to see how there's this respectability of, of, um, of a conservative gay, conservative gay, or gay ink that refuses to honor the legacy of our community. And it was, it was because we were being abused by the police. We were being um, killed and all of these things. You know, they found Marsha P. Johnson in, in, in the Hudson River. Like, 
all of these things, you know what I mean, um, that, you know, Sylvia Rivera got booed off of a stage in 1973 that she helped build when she was talking about incarcerated folks. She was like, you know, they're in prison. She was like, I was raped. I was beaten. And they're still there. And they're writing letters to me and Marsha. And they need your help. And instead, y'all are out here on some other stuff. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! I want to pivot um, to two, just to two. We have like 15 minutes left and Whoa. I want to make sure to cover. I know. That's why I want to pivot because it's, I feel like we could, we're all having, this is a very uh, productive conversation. So it's a good thing that it feels like it's going fast. These topics are, this has been a, what I was, what I thought we were going to talk about was um, Pulse and it is fully like one hour. <laughs> and, <laughs> I wish I wish we talked a little bit more about that journey, but I encourage people who are listening, um, the movie is, is something that will open your heart and you will definitely see where we're going in terms of activism as a community. I talked about deconstruction. I really feel like we cannot do it without really coming together in a big way. Whatever we are fighting right now, I think we have a big job ahead of us, you know, November 3rd, and that should be our focus. But, you know, gun violence is still a problem, and I want to give a voice to that. I mean, marginalized communities are suffering from gun violence more than anyone else. And in the LGBTQ community specifically, we get shot up. And I mean, I don't want to get into statistics and bore people even more, but I want to say that that it can't just go away right now, the focus on gun violence, because kids aren't in school shooting up, you know, buildings. I, I just want to make sure people know as soon as we're back in buildings, people may be shooting them up again. And, uh, you know, right now, okay, we're taking a pause, but I'm not. We're not, though. The shootings have gone up at home. Like we're right. talking about human partner violence. No, but to the white people, like they're not oh. seeing the guns in the news the way, because, you know, I know that there are still, I mean, I follow, you know, it comes up on my Google alerts, but I'm saying the things that make people upset, like a great example would be Sandy Hook, you know, where every, or um, Parkland, where everyone gets behind it and Judd Apatow makes five movies and you know, everybody, you know, puts money in and, and the kids, you know, unite and we love this. And I'm, I love this, but I don't want to take my focus off of gun violence as a real pandemic. I mean, it's not in a lot of countries, you know, we, we don't, they don't have the problem we do like UK. I mean, I've been talking to a man from UK a lot lately, but anyway, without getting into that, I'll just say it is an epidemic here in this country, and it will continue to be one long after COVID. Yes. Can I just ask you, I just want to ask you one follow-up question on that. Um, because I do think that, I mean, obviously this, well, maybe it's not obvious, but you know, this, this, when this happened, it, it really affected, you know, me and I, I wonder, because I do think that we've, as a culture, just spent so much time paying attention to the school shootings specifically because they have the innocence angle that um that some folks can maybe object to if it's a if it's a if it's a gay club like how, well you know it's a different it's just a different vibe and i'm just curious in your experience making this film if you found outside of our community um the intentional one that we have built uh 
like does this was the was the rest of the country as fucked up about this as we were do you know the quick answer to that i know it's like a really intense question but like is that what is that what the does you the mean, did they talk change, about that you know do you mean did they change their you know united for pulse you know facebook profile pictures no it was like when you know, France, so Je suis Charlie, you know, mm-hmm. everybody did it. Well, when polls happened, did everyone do it? No, it was probably like, you know, four out of 10, as opposed to maybe nine out of 10 for other causes. So then there were people that were allies, they were great allies, and, and you recognize those people, and I see them on my feed today. They do care, and they care about our causes. But I have to tell you, if gun reform was going to you know, happen, it probably would have happened with those white upper middle class children at Sandy Hook. It did not. And then 49 Latinx and their allies were killed at Pulse and people were like even less interested. And, and it just, it, it goes down right. and down. And, and I, I hate this. I hate this, you know, because we talked about it a little bit and I know we have to wrap up, but the sentiment to me is that People don't care because of the politicking that's behind the guns. So just like you and me know, the NRA, they do so much. So it's like even if somebody who is an NRA member or like we talked to a a woman who is the head of a Pink Pistols chapter, they teach gun safety and ownership. Uh, She is not an NRA member and she doesn't believe in them. But even the, the instilled fear of taking away the guns it's so, you know, it's integral to so many people and it means um, tyranny and it means um, the government can take over. And so I understand that, but we've got to get to a point, and this is what I've learned, is that we've been going like this. Guns are over here we, and, and the gun, pro-gun people are here and we're over here. We're like mandatory background checks and they go, hell no. And then we, we kind of keep, trying to meet them. Well, now we've got to stay over here so that we get into the middle because we keep, what I'm saying is mandatory background checks. They go, hell no. And then we go, fine, we're going to ban assault rifles. Like, wait a minute. And then, you know, to get more in the middle, um, because it's a big, big battle. And I'm, I'm just saying who wants to fight it? Well, I do, but the people over all the way here on the right and the people all the way here on the left, we've got to just stick to our guns. <laughs> no pun intended. Stick so to our that, no guns. Yes. Yeah. So that we can get those reform, which are background checks, which are the things that we can really go after. Because And, and I think if we're ever, like I know we only have like two minutes, if we're ever going to address that, it's about looking at the circumstances that place us in front of the barrel of the gun. And we know that it's always racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, intimate partner violence, uh, xenophobia, and all of these things. Because even with Orlando, there were a lot of Black people who were murdered in in Orlando. And we quickly saw the way that because it happened at a Latinx club, that it was like, oh, all of these people and their allies, but it was actually a lot of Black people. I saw the picture the other day. It was almost like, like, it was... And so we can't um, continue to subscribe to single slice ideology. We don't have to, I think about it as a game of political whack-a-mole where they hit one group over the head and they go down and then the other comes up and then they do it again and again. But what would it look like if we all rose up together? And so we have to stop separating these, like, yes, there are groups that do have disproportionate experiences, but we can, again, want liberation and power for all of us simultaneously instead of erasing other people's experiences. So even though I'm a Black trans woman, I still care about incarceration. I still care about, you know, uh, the um, immigration system. And I still care about reproductive rights, even though I can't have children. And, you know, we have to do this in solidarity. Friends. Um before I send you back to your day, I always ask folks to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Do you have a queero that you would like to shout out? Oh, that's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, Miss Macula at West Bloomfield High School, she made me feel like I could be out and proud. And she took me to my first Ani DeFranco concert. Oh my God. <laughs> in Detroit, Michigan. And um, I'm so happy that I had her because I literally contemplated suicide every single day. And um, it was not easy to grow up in a Western suburb. You know, I definitely did not know what I was, but I didn't really feel, I felt like a wrong end. And she, you know, I, I don't want to tear up, but I love Miss, Mrs. Macula, wherever you are. I love you. Uh, mine would be this uh, Black woman named Vivian Edwards at the Hollywood uh, DMV. Um, because when I was changing, um, I had changed my name and this is before they were changing gender on I, you know, that it was like a big thing. And she, I was so nervous and so afraid and she made calls for me up to Sacramento to record security and worked with the team up there to make sure that my ID represent that it reflected my gender. Um, despite the fact that at the time they were requiring people to do all of these like hoops and, and she completely cut through all the bureaucracy to help me be able to navigate the society. And that was so powerful. And it was, you know, I, I literally like called her like my DMV mother or guardian angel because she didn't have to do that. And she took the time to make me feel seen. And so. Wow. That is, y'all two are like, very, very infrequently do people, and it happens, but very infrequently do people have uh, like a personal human. Sometimes it's like a celebrity or a piece of, you know, like a film or something, piece of culture. Um, but I think that that is actually like a really beautiful way to wrap up this particular conversation because so many different things were brought up and there are so many things to feel fucking powerless about. You know what I mean? Like we're like, what about... The intersection of gun violence like it's like very it's, it can be very overwhelming and so i really and that's okay you know it's okay it's a, if it's overwhelming and i also really love that it ended with and here are two specific people that made my life more livable because i think you know for anybody listening um that might feel like these are such big topics and such important topics it's hard to figure out your entry point you know the entry point is always other people it's it's always and obviously systems you know we're working on systems but if you're just wondering what to do today other people oh. um anyway i really appreciate both of your time thank you i uh, want to thank you so much for being such a wonderful host cameron and for having us on the show today it means the world to me and i hope that you will encourage people to take a look at the film that i directed and ashley marie preston was in and was executive produced called disarm hate on amazon um, Voodoo, Fandango, Comcast, Cox, um, etc. Microsoft, you know, all these other streaming platforms. Disarm hate. Thank you so much. Thank you.